Welcome to the podcast. I'm Corey. I'm Natalie. I'm Jen. And I'm Ginny. And we are the Art History Babes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we're all together again. Finally, oh. it happened to me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so all four of us are back, which is exciting. What's everyone been up to? How was your trip, Nat? It was good. Mount Shasta was great. I love it up there. I'm going to take you guys. Yes. Eventually. Did Definitely. you climb the mountain? Not this time. <laughs> you know, it's only Climb like it's only like a twelve-hour endeavor. You know, that reminds me of, of New Girl. Fifi. Oh yeah, it goes to climb, climb Mount Shasta. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I forgot that it was oh. Mount Shasta. Yeah, she goes to climb Mount Shasta to get over Schmidt. Which is <laughs> one way to do it. I guess. Yeah, right. She doesn't end up doing either. <laughs> no. So you know. But no, it was great. Went to Calistoga, Napa, went to the Hess Collection. I love the Hess Collection. So good. So did you do one of those like mineral mud baths? God, yeah. You, you did? did? <gasps> Have you guys ever done one? No. It's no, like okay. my dream. God, so what is this you life think, you're living? Okay, so you think like <laughs> mineral mud bath. You're going to walk in like a spa and it's going to smell like tea tree. No, and, it like, smells not good. No, it literally <laughs> smells like manure. <laughs> <laughs> we watched it. We're like, what the fuck did we get ourselves into? It's like yeah. manure and sulfur. And then they're like, okay, now get naked and get in there. But like you can't get in first because the bottom's too hot. So you have to like Wait. <laughs> slide in. Oh my God. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, so you have to kind of go in like butt first? Yeah. It's like a big tub with like the flat edges. So you have to kind of like lay on it. And I'm there with my mom and her boss. And they're like all just like naked, like sliding into this mud. Did you see your mom's naked boss? Yeah. <laughs> all right. We just, yep. I just needed to know. <laughs> I need to know I if that happens. It's interesting. We should do it. We could do. We should do it. We could do. We'll podcast live from the mud bath. Like, how did your we out here. We out here at the mud bath. After that, did I mean, it feel good, so but not extraordinary. Mm. I don't know. Nothing soft. Dish. I'm living vicariously. <laughs> Before we get into you know the art history stuff, want to give a shout out to Sam for. Sam. Our awesome intro song. Sam. We're so excited because we've really been wanting an intro song since we started, basically. And Sam just came up with something and we were like, 100% yes, Sam. Yeah, she put it together and... You nailed it? She nailed it. It's so good. Sam, if you're listening, it was so good and we're so happy. And to our listeners, check out Sam's music on her SoundCloud. So today we're talking about color theory, which is a really crazy exciting rabbit hole that we're going down like it gets weird it does it gets really (laughs) weird guys so because it's such a big topic we're gonna do a two-parter so we're gonna kind of start with talking about the sciencey side of color color perception which is also kind of the philosophical side of color they kind of intersect. So I'm just going to throw some science at you real quick. What is color exactly? We didn't really understand it until the 1600s. In 1672, Isaac Newton published his experiments in color perception, which is a lot of the information we currently know about color perception. The most well-known was he used a prism to prove that light alone was responsible for color. So it's the light that creates our perception of color and color exists in our minds. So that's just a trippy idea, really, when you think about it. And that's the cover of a Pink Floyd (laughs) album, by the way, which can't get any trippier than that. You really can't. Dark Side of the Moon. Isn't it Dark Side of the Moon? I think so. Yeah. So yeah, nothing about an object that you look at is inherently a color. If you look at a blueberry, it's not inherently blue. What happens is that color is perceived in our mind by reflected light. So perception of a specific wavelength of visual light is what's happening. The light reflects off into your eyes and then you see the color in your mind, which is trippy. Mm. (laughs) That is so hard for me to wrap my mind around. I know, right? When I think about it, I think I want to look at the things in our world 
outside of my brain. Like, I want to know, what do they look like yeah, outside right? of my brain? I don't know. Without my perception. Exactly. So, yeah, it can really lead to some crazy philosophical thoughts and questions. But, okay, so kind of breaking it down a little more scientifically. Visible light is part of the electromagnetic spectrum. The visible spectrum are the spectral colors, which are the colors of the rainbow. So, visible light, visible spectrum, spectral colors, rainbow. Pigments create color, in a sense. So, for example, like in carrots, the pigment that makes a carrot look orange are carotenoids. And what a pigment does is it absorbs some of the wavelengths of light and it reflects back others. And the light reflected back is the color that you see. So a pigment is just absorbing and reflecting light and that's how it creates a color. Does that make sense? (laughs) That's so crazy. Yeah, my astronomy professor from undergrad, Dr. Olson, thank you. That's what I'm seeing right now because there's like, the different colors, and if I'm wrong, correct me, but they're different lengths, right? Yes. So, like, red is the longest. Yep. If you were to rank colors by, like, what we're able to absorb, that's, mm. like, the first color, I guess you would yeah. say. be, like, red. And what's the shortest? Isn't it, like, blue? Blue. Blue, blue is the, the shorter end of yeah. the spectrum. So, yeah, red at one end, blue at the other. Yeah. So and then green's like kind of in the middle. Think, like, squiggly lines and then, like, longer ones and shorter ones. And that's why when an object is coming at you... You see more red light, and when it's going away, it's more blue. Yeah. 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 Um, and there's theory about that, like with paintings. So, like colors that kind of pop out in paintings versus colors that recede. Right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, what's happening in your eyes when you're perceiving color? Your cones are your color perceiving cells. So, we all know we have rods and cones in our eyes. Cones are the ones that perceive color, and there's significantly less cones than there are rods. You have about six million cones in each eye. There's still a lot of cones, but that's what perceives color. Thank you, cones. Shout <laughs> um, <laughs> out to all the cones out there. <laughs> Humans are considered trichromats, which means we see everything through blue, red, and green channels. So the cones in our eyes, they either see blue, red, or green. They all kind of have a different purpose. They say blue, red, or green. And then the combinations of the different cones working together is how we see mm. other colors Mm -hmm. humans can see somewhere between 2.38 million and 10 million colors um whoa yeah there's there's a lot of different science on it um from what i heard because i got a lot of this information off of this really great podcast done by um stuff you should know called how color works check that out if you want more because they do a really great full episode on just kind of color optics and color theory we also just love them yeah we love them a lot (laughs) Um, that podcast said that the best science that's been done on it says 2.38 million but there's other science that suggests up to like 10 million so it's a lot of colors. There's a lot of colors like, we can see. How do they even <laughs> test that? Like, I, it, I mean, that's like like anything. Like it's a spectrum. So certain people yeah. see more colors than other people, which is just a trip anyway. Yeah, and that's. I mean, color blindness, color deficiency is a very common thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you even really <coughs> like what's the word measure color deficiency? Because right. technically, color deficiency just means you can't tell the difference between certain shades of color. It's on the gradient of color blindness. Yeah. But the whole like color perception thing, it's so interesting because really any two people could see color in a more intense or less intense way. Like it's such a big spectrum of how we see color. You and know? then wouldn't color be inherently subjective then since yeah. we're making it in right. our brains? Right. Mm-hmm. What? <laughs> <laughs> um, which kind of brings me to this next idea. Shout out to another of our favorite podcast this american life we're Mm -hmm. all big this american life fans Mm -hmm. um and there was an episode not too long ago called something only i can see and it opens with the story of this guy who he had issue with like vessels bleeding behind his eye or something so he had to get i know right (laughs) he had to get surgery so he got this surgery and the doctors used lasers to kind of fix this problem and then one day post-surgery he comes inside after he was outside in the cold and it took his eyes some time to adjust and he saw a color that he describes as a green that could never exist which is like interesting yeah right so then Ira Glass is interviewing him and like asking him to try to keep explaining this color he goes on to say 
if the color black was fluorescent and green. And that's like the... Whoa. (laughs) Right? That's kind of like my nails. (laughs) (laughs) Mystery solved. Uh, Yeah, I got it right here, actually. Uh, Sorry, bro. It's called Raven. Um, (laughs) The whole episode's really good and really interesting, but it's kind of like, you know, how do you explain a color only you've seen? How do you do that? It speaks a lot to the subjectivity of color experience and... Even just speaking from a personal perspective, I think my color proficiency has improved over the years. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like I see colors better now than I did Mm. before. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's something, especially being in art history and, like, we study images and we look at color and we think about color. I honestly think when I look at a sunset now, it looks different than it did five years ago. Philosophical question. (laughs) So because we know that color is of the mind and not necessarily, like, real, Mm -hmm. do you think it's just the fact that you notice it more now and that you learn to vocalize what you're seeing more than you would have before because we look and talk about so much? Or do you think that you genuinely see more than you did? I think it's a combination. I mean, because all of our experiences change us and make us aware of new things. I think it's just... You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about color now, so it just makes mm-hmm. me more aware. I think it's maybe an increase in awareness mm-hmm. Yeah, is a good way to well, put you know, it. Well, you know, what I've noticed coming into my middle and later 20s is that <clears throat> there are some colors now that I seriously can't stand. Like what? Like I hate yellow. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? Yeah, yellow makes me so uncomfortable mm. and it grates on my... Your my senses like all yellow like even like that more no like no or just no like ochre is fine but let's say for instance the color of the koozie that our good friend <laughs> zach made for us that kind of highlighter yellow mm. i mean you guys probably haven't noticed but i never use the yellow highlighter that's when yeah I'm interesting now that you say that yeah i yeah. always do like the green because yellow just makes me so yeah, like a visceral reaction i do yeah. i feel like Mm. You know, that's <laughs> the best way to describe it. I'm just like, I don't like it. And I didn't have that as a kid, so I don't know what that's all that's about. That's interesting. Yeah. I dipped my toe into the psychology pool Ooh. of all of this. Yeah, just a toe. <laughs> but they talk about how red and yellow are the easiest colors for really, really young children to digest. So, like, young, young children tend to be drawn towards red and yellow more than any other color. That makes sense. I like Those are my favorite colors. And I was red and yellow were my favorite colors as a child. Yeah, and that would totally make sense with what you were saying about waves and and the, like, length and red being the easiest to see. Yeah, and that kind of segues nicely into color vocabulary. So we're kind of shifting from, like, the optical physics element of it into the words you use to talk about color in art. So going to talk about the color wheel a little bit. You've all probably seen one is probably in your like kindergarten classroom. So the primary colors, red, blue, and yellow. Secondary colors exist from a combination of any of those two colors and you get orange, green, and purple. And then you do the same thing again with secondary colors and you get tertiary colors Red, orange, red, purple, blue, purple, blue, green, yellow, green, and yellow, orange. So that's kind of your basic color wheel. The word hue, which you're all probably familiar with, is really just referring to the name of a color. It's kind of interchangeable with the color name itself. Saturation refers to the intensity of purity of a hue. So high saturation, it's going to be really bright. And desaturation, low saturation is going to be a very washed out color. Value is the degree of lightness or darkness of a hue. And then there are three words that tend to be used interchangeably, but they actually shouldn't be. Shade, tint, and tone. Shade actually refers to adding black to a hue. Tint refers to adding white. And then tone refers to adding gray. So they don't all mean the same thing. They can have similar effects, but they mean different things in terms of color vocabulary. Temperature would refer to warm colors versus cool colors. Mm -hmm. So your warm colors are red, orange, yellows. Mm -hmm. Cool colors are purple, blues, and greens. Some general color schemes that are popular, a monochromatic scheme would just be one hue, and then you add white, black, and gray 
to that hue to create a monochromatic color scheme. Complementary colors sit across each other on the color wheel. Using complementary colors of equal intensity can result in what's considered color vibrations, what can kind of be like visual noise in the design world. Mm. So like if you put a green and a red of equal intensity next to each other, it's it's going to be intense. It's going to yeah. be really intense on your eyes. It's going to create what's considered a color vibration. So that's oh. something to be aware of. People tend to think complementary colors, they must go great together. Mm. Not necessarily always <laughs> true. <laughs> Let's see, another one is an analogous color scheme, which is two to four colors next to each other on the color wheel. So any two to four that all sit next to each other on the color wheel. A triadic color scheme is three colors that are evenly spaced around the color wheel. A split complementary scheme is a base color and two colors adjacent to its complementary color. That is honestly probably going to be more harmonious than trying to put together complementary colors. Hmm. So if you take like a color on the color wheel as your base color and then you find its complementary color across the color wheel and then you use the two colors on either side. Oh yeah, I remember learning about this. Yeah, that's going to probably be a lot more harmonious and like nice on the eyes. So next time you're painting your bathroom, keep this in mind. Or next time you're like looking at an abstract painting and you start talking shit saying like, I could do this. Think of all that, that <laughs> artists had to learn by way of color theory. Uh, yeah. yeah. Memorize all this shit and learn it and have some damn appreciation for it. <laughs> yeah. Another one, the square color scheme, which is for complementary colors evenly spaced around the color wheel. I thought that was kind of an interesting one that I've never really employed. I've never heard of that before. Yeah. For evenly spaced colors around the color wheel, that's going to be a nice little color scheme for you. So try it. Play with us sometime. Yeah. Like, I like yeah, right? I wish we had a color wheel right now. I know. Right? We'll, put one, we'll put one on the website. Definitely. We do, do have, have a Pantone book. book. Oh, yeah, we do. <laughs> I'm going to talk about. Oh, um, boy. But yeah, before I talk about that, if you want some like visual examples of all those things I just talked about, there's this really great YouTube video and we'll put it on our sources on our website. It's simple art tips on YouTube and it's just this like super cute girl with like awesome glasses and she does a great job. So we'll put that up if you want some like visual examples as well to go along with all these color schemes and color wheel things. But Pantone, the 20th century in color is an amazing book. Can we just talk about what this book looks like? It's like before you even open so it. So much fun. It. It's just <laughs> lovely. I just really love it. <laughs> no, it's great. But it's even better when you open it up because. Oh my God, we're geeking <laughs> out. You should go to your local library, check it out. It's really cool. Touch it. What, <laughs> what it does is it's in chronological order and it examines essentially like important color palettes throughout the entire 1900s. Starts in 1900s, goes all the way to the 1990s. Oh, do they have that radium, that <laughs> radium green? Probably. <laughs> but it just, it goes through each decade. It hits on really important, not only important artists, but just important cultural, visual, like culture type things that happened in that decade. It's got like a little blurb about that thing and then images, and then it breaks down the color palette for you and tells you the exact shades. Like, I just opened it up to, let's see, what decade was this? This was the 1940s. I just opened it up randomly. Fantasia is the first one. So you have these stills from Fantasia, which is an amazing film. Oh it is amazing. God. This is just like a brief side note. Kay Nielsen illustrated a lot of Fantasia. Fantastic artist. So I love Fantasia. But back to Fantasia. <laughs> Fantasia is great. I loved this movie when I was little, and mm-hmm. I think it was probably a hardcore indicator that I was going to be like a story yeah, kid. Yeah, me too. Because like, right. I was just like so about it. Right. And like, that, uh, that last that last part of the movie where it's like the devil and there's all the little <laughs> dancing devil people coming out of the volcano. <laughs> that was my favorite part. Yeah. It was so cool. Um, yes. Anyways, it's trippy but visually fantastic. Yeah. So yeah, Fantasia, and then it's got these stills from Fantasia, and then it breaks down the color palette like we've got bittersweet and golden cream Mm. and deep lichen green and then like the next page is edward hopper who was a very important artist in the 1940s and it does the same thing for him 
And then we have World mm. War II. And it shows, it shows World War II propaganda posters and oh. then breaks that down. It's like We should do an episode on those alone. <laughs> I know, right? So it does this for the entire 20th century. I really like the 90s. They talk about like the grunge yes. color palette. And like, <laughs> do they talk about Nickelodeon? I'm not oh. sure. <laughs> because that orange color yeah. will forever be <laughs> in right? my and mind. The slime. Yeah. The yes. Oh, the slime. the slime. Like that. Those two colors. Disgusting, man. like lime. That that Shrek yes. green. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, it's a great book. You should check it out. We'll also have it up on our sources as well on the website. So that's what I've got for right now. I'm gonna pass it over to Ginny. She's gonna teach oh, a thing or two about the color blue, oh, y'all. I'm so excited about the color blue. <laughs> And I have so much to share with you on the color blue. So I'm going to open it with this. Yo, listen up. Here's a story about a little guy that lives in a blue world. (laughs) (laughs) And all day and all night and everything he sees is just blue. Like him inside and outside blew his house with a blue little window and a blue Corvette. And everything is blue for him. And himself and everybody around, because he ain't got nobody to listen. I'm um, blue. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> you all know that song. I mean, I'm sure a lot of you do. Eiffel 65, that was, that was like, that, that was, was so popular. Jam. And you remember like your music videos were so trippy. They were. So shout out to you guys. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> So for this episode, I got really into blue and I can't even (laughs) exactly describe why it just kind of happened. I mean, I guess I can pin it at the very least to my good friend, David. David, this is a shout out to you who was talking to me specifically about the color ultramarine, which I'll get into shortly and how that color really kind of dominated the pigment color scheme of art, especially during the Renaissance. But before I get into that, What is so interesting about the color blue is that in the English language, it was one of the last colors to be added. So it came after yellow, it came after red, it came after green even. The beginnings were kind of like more of just the basics of white and black. And I've read a lot of different articles and we'll post all of them, but a couple of them have talked about how in ancient Greece... Blue was not, there wasn't a word for it. So like if you were describing like the ocean, for example, in the Odyssey, the ocean is described as being wine dark. So it's way more about tonality Mm. and light and dark rather than actually being able to describe the color blue. And I mean, this isn't surprising to me because I love ancient Egypt and I think that it's like, one of the dopest periods, especially (laughs) for art history, that the Egyptians were the first to really get into blue and start using blue and making blue pigments and created really the way of defining blue. And this came from the stone lapis lazuli. So lapis lazuli was used by the Egyptians about, you know, 6,000 years ago and Cleopatra actually used it as eyeshadow. So the stone was ground into like a fine powder and she used it as eyeshadow. And honestly, if Cleopatra was using it, you know it's fucking dope. Because <laughs> um, it's Cleopatra. She would. Like, <laughs> oh, here's this new thing we've never seen before. Yeah. Let's, let me put it on my face. <laughs> yeah. We should start a makeup brand. Like, oh, based in art historical colors. Ooh, <laughs> wow! Anyone who wants to sponsor us for that, <laughs> let us know or sponsor <laughs> us in general. Just hit <laughs> us up. Anything. Yeah, arthistorybabes at gmail Trademark. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, so the Egyptians were the first ones that really began playing with lapis lazuli and incorporating chemistry into that, where they were adding other. Like they would add calcium or limestone into the lapis lazuli stone to create different shades of blue. And so this is where really the word for the color blue emerged. And then because of ancient Egypt's influence and position in the greater trade, this really spread to other parts of the world. 
And the stone itself, the lapis lazuli stone, I like want to get a ring or something with lapis lazuli because it's so, ooh, it's like such a beautiful, vibrant blue and it has like flecks of different colors in it. And it really makes sense why later colors made from lapis lazuli were specifically geared towards religious figures because the stone itself, it almost looks like you're looking at like a little world or like a kind of cosmos scene. Like, you know, you have these beautiful, yeah, it's it's such a beautiful, rich color. And with these little flecks in it, it kind of just looks like you're looking out at the universe in the stone. And so this is what kind of started the trend of different shades of blue carrying these deeper meanings of holy, expensive pigments that were made um, from the paints. So I've read this one particular book, and we'll post this on the website, and it's been really interesting. It's called Color, A Natural History of the Palette by Victoria Finlay, or Finlay, Finlay. I like Finlay. I might be wrong, but it's got a bit more sass. I think it's Finlay. (laughs) We already talked about a couple of our favorite podcasts that discuss color. And an additional one that I'm going to add to that list is our friends. Like we know them. (laughs) I'm just our friends. Um, (laughs) But Radiolab has an episode on colors. It's season 10, episode 13 if any of you want to check that out. And they too talk about, you know, kind of the science of colors and perception of colors, but they interview this author, Victoria Finlay, in there from this book. And so each chapter of her book has to do with a different color. And the chapter on blue is just fascinating. Looking at like how blue kind of started, and especially with lapis lazuli, blues made from the stone lapis lazuli in ancient Egypt. And that really spread to a lot of different parts of the world. China loved it. A lot of lapis lazuli mines are in Afghanistan, also Persia, Iran. And that this color really kind of spread out like it exploded out as a color that was very expensive and very highly valued as being a color that was not only hard to find, hard to make, but was associated with wealth, royalty, and then later kind of like a sense of holiness. And this really comes in with Italy. And it sort of begins like in the early Renaissance where, you know, the church decides to start color coding different saints and religious figures, and the Virgin Mary gets blue. So this is where we start seeing, you know, like her robes being painted in these like really rich blue colors. And this led me into the world of ultramarine. And ultramarine is so cool. (laughs) It's so cool. So ultramarine In the word itself, like ultramarine, so you think of the sea, so it's like all these blues and greens. But when you look at ultramarine, which is made from lapis lazuli, it's really like very blue. There's not that much green in it. And so this is a confusion of the word. So in Italian, it stems from the word ultramarino, which basically just means from beyond the seas. And the Italians use this term not just specifically to lapis lazuli in this blue pigment paint. They meant it as more of a way of describing things that came from far beyond Italy. They came from beyond the seas. And this kind of leads to that mythos, enigmatic quality of this ultramarine color, which came from stones that were from very far away, primarily Afghanistan. And so that's where the word ultramarine comes from. It's also found in Chile, Zambia, Siberia, but Afghanistan is is still to this day like the primary country where these mines of lapis lazuli are. And for painters, ultramarine was purchased by patrons. No artist could afford lapis lazuli, like not even the big time artists. And in this book that I read, Color by Victoria Finlay, she talks specifically about Michelangelo. And he did a painting of the Entombment. And this is actually in the British Museum now. I'm pretty sure it's the British Museum. I might be, but I'm pretty sure. Um, (laughs) I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure. Part of it is unfinished. And we'll post this image on the website so you can see it. But in the image, 
there is blank space in the lower right-hand corner. And you're like, what the fuck is that, Michelangelo? Like, what were you doing? <laughs> uh, like, what? And it was because it was meant to be the Virgin Mary, and he was going to paint her robes in ultramarine, but he didn't have enough money. And his patrons, like, you can imagine Michelangelo, and he was, by all accounts, a somewhat fiery kind of figure, writing to his patrons being like, you know, fuck, like, give me money so I can get this ultramarine. You know, this shit's coming from Afghanistan. They need to mine it, and then they need to, like, break it down and mix it with minerals and water, and they need to get it to me, and I need to paint it, but I can't afford it myself. So when... <laughs> Slight Italian accent. I know. <laughs> right at the end. Yeah, so artists during this time, if they did not have patrons that had the means to buy this very, very expensive pigment, then they would have to resort to other shades of blue, or in Michelangelo's case, they would leave them blank. I also want to point out just, like, how perfectly bitchy Michelangelo was to just leave that blank. Right? You know, because he could have painted it any other color. He could have done other shades He he really could have. And Uh he was like, you know what? No. Fuck y'all. Yeah. All right? Yeah. I want ultramarine. Right. He had such a little attitude, though. Like, my favorite is the whole anecdote about him, like, running away from the Sistine Chapel, yeah. like, multiple times. He's like, I'm not going to do this. <laughs> he just, like, ran away, and then, like, the Pope Honestly. would bring him back, and you'd be like, fuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. so funny. <laughs> no, but I mean, talking about how it's made, because I-, I bookmarked a specific part in this color book where she talks about how the ultramarine is made from lapis lazuli. And so I'm just going to like read this little portion here. So lapis lazuli, this is not my voice. It's Victoria's Finlay's, Victoria Finlay's. So imagine quotation marks. Yeah, Lapis lazuli is a complex clump of minerals, including hyune. (laughs) Good job. Sodalite, nosian, and lazurite. In the best grades, there is more sulfur, the yellow element, curiously making the stone more violet. And in the worst case, it, it oh, Jesus. And in the worst, <laughs> that's my worst. No. Um, <laughs> and in the worst grades, there is more calcium carbonate turning it gray. To make it into paint, all these impurities, including the sparkling pirate stars. So those are like when you look in the lapis lazuli stone, those are what I was saying. Kind of make it look like a universe. Mm-hmm. It's so cool. To achieve that, the color maker had to be a baker, lovingly kneading a dough of finely powdered lapis, resin, wax, gum, and linseed oil for up to three days. To coax out the blue, our artist cook put the dough into a bowl of lye, which is wood ash or water, and then kneaded it with two sticks, squeezing and pressing it for hours until the liquid was saturated with blue. They then separated the blue into a clean bowl and leaving it to dry into a powdery pigment started again with a fresh lye and the small ball of resin. So this was the whole process. So obviously it was not, you know, easy peasy. And the fact that it came typically from Afghanistan, distance and time equals cost pretty much. And today, I mean, obviously, this is a rough estimate because it depends on how much you're ordering. But today, it could easily cost $3,000 to still (laughs) get this ultramarine made from lapis lazuli. And this was really interesting because our last episode on the Bacchanal, Jen talked about Bacchus and Ariadne by Titian. And in this book on color, the author talks about that same painting and how Titian used ultramarine for the sky and how perfect is that with the myth of Ariadne and Bacchus and that this color was typically viewed during the Renaissance and even beyond the Renaissance as being a color that was like illustrious and beautiful and perfect and sort of beyond all others. And I was reading too about like, okay, why then in like the English language is blue something that relates to like, oh, I'm feeling blue, like I'm sad or whatever. And part of it could be, I mean, this is speculation, but it could be that because this color was like one of the last colors in the English language and it relates to the sky and it relates to the sea, that it's it, it kind of has something to do with beyondness of something that is distant and maybe receding and therefore not as tangible as other colors, or maybe that relates to 
not tangible emotions. I don't know. If I that think that any sense, no, you totally are. Great actually, yeah, that was amazing because that actually when we've been talking about and thinking about colors in terms of emotion. It reminded me of the movie that came, it was last summer, Inside Out. Did you guys watch yes. that at all? I no. didn't see it. I adored it so oh, much. Oh, that's like the Pixar movie? Amy Poehler, we love you. Yeah, we love you so much. Oh, yeah. I didn't it's, see it, but I heard it was really feeling. good. It's amazing. It's this Pixar movie about emotions. It's mm. super cute. It's so great. But what I think is so great about it is just from like a psychological perspective, it really teaches kids a lot about emotion and how to deal with their emotions. Sure. But it also does kind of associate colors with emotions like joy yeah. is yellow, blue is sadness. And what's so, so, so great about this movie, and I just like praise them so much for it, is that they really did this amazing job of making the audience realize that sadness is a useful emotion, Mm -hmm. that it has a purpose, and that it like, it might not be the most logical sometimes, but it, it's kind of like a bigger purpose. Yeah, that it's like it? the secondary protagonist. Yeah. Like joy and sadness are basically like the two protagonists of the whole storyline, which is yeah. great. That's, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, before. and they are, and it's so great because in our society, joy is so like, I mean, everyone wants everyone to be happy all the time. Mm-hmm. Like it's such a value trait, and it is in the movie for quite a while, but then they did something really interesting and they made sadness as this very important part of human experience. Mm-hmm. And they, and like I said, blue was attached to it. Like the mm-hmm. sadness character was blue and, mm-hmm. and they did this whole cool thing where sadness and joy wrapped together in certain memories mm-hmm. and created this beautiful like yellow blue vortexy type image. Interesting. Yeah. I need to watch this It's now. amazing. But it did this like, it just did this really great thing of like, Kind of going off what you were saying, Ginny, about blue and sadness being this, yeah. like, kind of bigger thing. It, mm-hmm. it kind of captured that in a certain yeah. way. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting insight into why blue is associated with sadness. I've never heard it put like mm-hmm. that. Because according to most psychologists, they can't really figure it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, nobody really knows why we associate blue and like black with you know black is associated with like ominous or evil Mm -hmm. and then blue is associated with somber or sadness and and then you get into like cultural differences which gets so complicated and yeah there's this article from the guardian but it is discussing a 1931 study done by a dr siegfried katz of new york state psychiatric institute So he published a study in the Journal of Applied Psychology, and it was called Color Preference in the Insane. So this is, you know, obviously before politically correct (laughs) terminology. We don't call them the insane today, but we know what this means. Dr. Katz tested 134 hospitalized patients with mental health problems, and he limited the testing to six colors, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and violet. No black, no white, no shades of gray. And had the patients choose which color they liked the best. Interestingly, the most popular color was blue. Hmm. Yeah, second popular colors in men were green. Women patients were divided between green, red, or violet as a second choice. Hmm. Also... Patients with the most marked mental deterioration, their color preferences shifted towards green and yellow. So Mm, interesting. Very interesting. And 38% of schizophrenics and manic depressives gave their first preference to blue and 42% of all of their patients. That reminds me of the pinnacle of meditation, like almost when you've reached enlightenment, quote unquote. Apparently, you see just like a really intense blue. And Whoa. it's supposed to... Honestly, it's, blue is like <laughs> blowing my mind. I know. It's supposed Whoa. to kind of represent God in some ways. And, it, right. and it's an experience, like this is a documented experience by many people right. who have gotten really deep into meditation. Blue ends up being the color that right. they experience. Oh, well, yeah. isn't blue nearest to the highest chakra? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> the blue chakra, which is the third eye chakra, mm-hmm. is awareness. And then the crown chakra is purple, purple, and that is spirituality. 
Purple Prince. That makes sense. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, yes. We've got it because all figured out. Because I was yeah. I was torn between blue and purple. Mostly purple because I love Prince. Well, and Prince but... was obviously the highest <laughs> level of enlightenment. He was obviously released accounts. from the brutal cycle of Moshka yeah. and achieved yeah. Nirvana yeah. as a perfect, yes. perfect, <laughs> yes. purple Prince. Yes. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Picasso's blue period. It was a short period. In Spanish, Periodo Azul. Spanish painter Pablo Picasso, between 1901 and 1904, was painting these monochromatic shades of blue works. And these works, they were inspired by Spain. He painted in Barcelona and in Paris. And they are some of his most popular works and one of the most popular periods of an artist that we know about. I can't think of very many other artists that we have popularized one of their periods. Like, For sure. You know what I mean? No, but I, I feel like even, even the layman art historian knows yeah. about the blue period. So the works are characterized by a somber, austere subject matter. So prostitutes, beggars, drunks, these were frequent subjects. And what is known about the blue period is that Picasso was influenced by a journey that he was taking through Spain after the suicide of his friend, Carlos Casagamas. So this was a good friend of Picasso's and Picasso would later recall that he started painting in blue when he learned of Casagamas' death. So there's been a lot of pushed by art historians and psychologists alike wanting to associate the blue palette with this psychology behind this moment of losing his very good friend. It should also be noted that Picasso wasn't there when Casagames committed suicide, but when he returned to Paris in May, he stayed in the studio of his departed friend and worked for several weeks on an exhibition that he was going to have of these works. They were hugely popular, but Picasso's psychological state worsened and he sank into a severe depression. So during these next three years, most of his work was dominated by blue tones. There isn't a whole lot that we know about why he then moved on from his blue period. Maybe he just got out of it, but it's very interesting to know that after the blue period, he had a rose period. <laughs> Did we know about the rose period? Yeah, I never heard about yeah, the rose yeah. period. I know about the rose period now. <laughs> um, and interestingly <laughs> enough, his psychological state improved by all accounts. And he began to work on more joyful, vibrant works. And he emphasized the use of pinks and other warm hues. And that expressed a shift in mood and in subject matter. So classical he got depressed he went blue and then all of a sudden he went all pink and rosy rose tinted glasses so what is this (laughs) why is that a why is that a thing i don't know i don't know either it's really interesting too that like blue can associate with kind of a depressed state but it also is very much related to feelings of calm Right? Mm-hmm. And what does that say? I think that about our calming. emotions. Yeah. What does that say that like blue and depression and blue and calm are so closely related? So I'll just end on some very non psychological really quickly, the colored cobalt. Cobalt stems off of ultramarine. Cobalt, <laughs> interestingly enough, means goblin. Stemming from the German word cobalt, spelled with a K. And this is because it's made from metal. And so this metal attracts a form of arsenic, which is obviously poisonous. And so this grew into the term of like, oh, it's cobalt. It's it's a gremlin. It's very dangerous to us. But it makes this color blue. And this also relates to the color Prussian blue, which can also depending on how you mix it, be kind of dangerous and poisonous. But then a new pigment of blue was discovered in 2009 by some chemists, not surprisingly, brilliant people, specifically Mas Subramanian. I'm most likely pronouncing that incorrectly. I do apologize. I tried my best. (laughs) But 
And so this came from a series of tests and scientists were mixing black manganese, manganese, manganese. Thank you. I want to pronounce everything like I'm Italian, manganese. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I am Italian, but anyways, oxide with a variety of chemicals and it was heated to like 2000 degrees Fahrenheit. And this created this new blue and it is such a vibrant beautiful blue i want it in my hair oh it's so pretty and what is really in your hair (laughs) (laughs) and what's very cool about this blue because beyond ultramarine a lot of these other really vibrant blues i talked about like cobalt and prussian blue can be toxic but this new blue which is called yin min which is stemming from like the chemistry uh the periodic ta- table yeah, and yeah, yeah 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 so they're combining that in the name so, so this is more durable safe and fairly easy to produce and it appears to be a new candidate for energy efficiency and Ooh. this would mean that if a roof were painted in this specific shade of blue it could potentially keep that whatever building that was cooler so not only is it not toxic but it could be energy efficient, and it's Amazing. a beautiful, beautiful color of blue. Magic um, blue. And a lot of blues have been discovered accidentally. Prussian blue was one such case. So blue, <laughs> it's fascinating. I had such a great time with this. <laughs> We're going to kind of wrap up this episode with a little bit of listener mail. What do we got, Natalie? All right, so our first listener mail comes from our fellow art history babe, Amanda. And goes as reads. Reads as. Yes. How do you say that? That, that, sounds, okay. that sounds great. Okay. Yes. <laughs> goes as reads. Why not? <laughs> Dear AH Babes, I love your podcast. And in reference to the Gorilla Girls episode, you mentioned how there is a history around hysteria and women thinking with emotion that are connected to their genitalia. Do you think it is acceptable in turn for women to accuse men of thinking with their penis? And to all of you lovely feminists in the podcast, have you ever personally accused a man of thinking with his genitalia? Hmm. Great questions. Very interesting. So I personally have not ever accused a man of thinking with his dick. Let's just say dick, okay? This is, <laughs> this is an adult podcast. Yeah. Thank right? you for being proper, but we're just going to tweak that. Yeah, you know, I'm, I don't know. The word penis is just so Too clinical. Yeah. And anyway, no, I've never, I have never accused a man of thinking with his dick because I feel like, not even has there ever even been an idea of like, no, I can't do that because I wouldn't want a man to accuse me of being hysterical because of my genitalia. It just seems absurd to accuse somebody of thinking with their genitals. I mean, well, the, you know. the whole idea of thinking with your genitals. I mean, if you really wanted to look at that <laughs> from a feminist perspective, that could go either way because... I mean, it is true. Sometimes people act in a certain way because they're trying to achieve certain sexual desires. Yeah, they want to have sex. Yeah, they want to have sex. So they might act a certain way because they want to have sex. But I feel like if you're really looking at that as like a liberated feminist, that could go either way. Like Mm -hmm. a girl can act a certain way because she wants to have sex the same way a guy can act a certain way. Because he wants to have sex. Whereas with the instance of hysteria, that was a little bit more of an institutionalized idea of mm. women being hysterical because their lady parts made them that way. Well, you know why they were that way is because they were horny. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Men but, didn't know how to pleasure. No, no, no. But but for, but seriously, the you know that's I'm being silly. Facetious. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. But no, seriously, though, that term originated around Victorian times, yeah. which historically were very repressed times. And I think that it's safe to say that maybe some women didn't know how to communicate that they had sexual needs. And I think that when all of the doctors are male and everything is run by men, it's very easy to give it a name especially during the age of, you know, I don't know, it seems like during Victorian times, an abundance of mental hospitals pops up. That, oh, that's, definitely. that's like the golden age of mental institutions. Yeah. So it's not surprising that doctors would want to give it a clinical term. So I think there was a lot of 
factors that went into play in coining the term hysteria. But yeah, from a modern day point of view, and as a feminist, I think that part of being a feminist is treating men with respect. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, and not stereotyping anyone regardless of their gender. And I mean, I don't know that I've ever used it. I can't think of a time. I've definitely had the thought, you know, like, but in more of a, like, flippant terms. Oh, yeah, you know. It's like boys will be boys, like the stupid uh, shit that people say that makes no sense. Boys will be boys is the worst. Yeah, it's an phrase. expression that Hashtag just gets angry. Fuck boys will be boys. Yeah, fuck there's boys. so many things Raise wrong boys with and that. girls the same way. Yeah, but it's like one of those terms that just kind of gets like, it's, you it's, get used to hearing it, so you don't really think much about it. But yeah, I it, like the comparison of that to women's hysteria. I do too. Definitely. I mean, because it's definitely problematic. Mm. It's not okay to just claim that men think with their penises any more than a woman thinks with her vagina. And like, I mean, even when you think about it in those kind of terms, like if you're thinking with a body part that is other than your brain, can we even say that fairly? Because you can think with your brain like, oh, I would like to have sex. Yeah. <laughs> and that is not necessarily all controlled by your vagina or your penis. That is, you know, your mind being like, well... You know, I would like to have sex. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's an overly simplistic phrase. Yeah. Because, yeah, like, if, I mean, the whole, like... And thinking, thinking that way is totally fine. Yeah. <laughs> like, you can think, I mean, like, your genitalia can... Control can, you. <laughs> can, can suggest some things, but you can still stop and, like, think about it logically and be like, well, yeah, I still want to have sex. And yeah. do that as a logical human being, female or male. So I definitely do think it could be a little bit of a double standard in certain circumstances, but I think it's just important to not. There's nuances that differentiate the problem of hysteria from the phrase yes. thinking with your penis. Yeah, and because I don't yeah, think any male was ever put into a mental institution exactly. given electroshock um, therapy because he I don't know to have what sex. happened with Tiger Woods, but you know, he <laughs> might have something to say on this topic. <laughs> oh, oh God. did they shock him? <laughs> I don't know. Tiger Woods, are you okay? <laughs> but yeah, that was a great question very interesting yeah, question we, and we, we thought about that for sure um and we appreciate all listener questions and listener mail ask us more questions yeah <laughs> ask us all the questions you want we love talking about it and someone find out what happened to tiger woods <laughs> <laughs> where is he um, what is he doing but the best way to reach us art history babes at gmail.com as we have also mentioned on every other episode we're on all the social media everyone so find us if you want to support us Rating us and giving us reviews has been lovely. That's the best thing you can do for us. Seriously, all the great reviews we have gotten has like legitimately it's made, made me Corey cry. Emotional. Yeah, it's made Corey cry. We have which, seen the tears. It's, which, granted, it's not super hard to do, but also <laughs> it means a lot. It does. It means a lot to all of us. We really, really appreciate it. Like. Honestly, the amount of support we have gotten has been pretty crazy. So thank Overwhelming. you so much. But thanks for listening. And tune in next time for Color Theory Part 2. Part deuce. Where we'll be talking about Joseph Albers and Color Theory and some more psychology business. We'll talk a little bit about some Van Gogh. Some Van Gogh. Mark Rothko. Ooh. Oh, baby. <laughs> but thanks for listening. And uh, we'll catch you later. Ciao, ciao. Bye. From Cabernet to Montmartre, they're here to slay the art history babes. Love Prince. Well, and Prince was obviously <laughs> the highest level of enlightenment. He was obviously released Olga. from the brutal cycle of Moshka yeah. and achieved yeah. Nirvana yeah. as a perfect, yes. perfect <laughs> yes. purple prince. Yes. The Art History Babes podcast is made possible by support from our lovely listeners via Patreon. Head over to patreon.com slash arthistorybabes to help keep the Art History Babes going and for access to bonus content.